Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Reset Podcast. I am your host, Laura Munoz, CEO of the experience agency, D-Flash. Each week, I bring a great new business leader who's doing game-changing work, and this week is no different. I'm so excited to have Anne Devereaux Mills, founder of the Parlay House and serial entrepreneur, and we'll talk about changing the world for women, doing great work, and how she got there and all the stories behind it. It's going to be a great conversation. Take a listen. Hey, Ann. Hey, Laura. So it's so great to have you in New York. Like, I know that it's a rare to get you in, in town. So we're psyched, we're psyched to have you. I'm psyched to be here. It's not that rare. I still think I'm a New Yorker at heart. Spent 30 years here, so it's still it's still home, at least part-time. So that would mean that you're still, you're only, you left when you were 10? I left home when I was three. Ah, <laughs> makes prodigious no. runaway yes well, you know these are things you do uh, so as you know the podcast I always ask the same first question and I'm always fascinated to see where the answers lie and I bet yours is going to be no different so Anne what was your first job? My first job was teaching sewing at the Stitch and Time Sewing Center in Seattle, Washington when I was 16 years old, and I was teaching people how to make beanbag frogs. <laughs> I worked there, I measured fabric, I sold fabric, I worked on patterns, helped people. I, I still have a sort of fashion obsession to this day, but my job was teaching frog making beanbag stuffing sewing class. Oh my gosh! First time you've heard that, huh? That is that is that is a first. Wow! So how how good are you at sewing? I made my prom dress. I made my confirmation dress. I still dabble, but you know, I, it's one of those. If I could have done it again, would I have gone into some sort of design? Yeah, maybe. But it's it's just become the thing that I love to do, and not the thing that over the years supported me or sustained another piece of me. Wow, okay, so small world. Um, my mom is the world's greatest sewer, as in she made all of my dresses um, till now. She still wow. does. That's amazing. Um, like, uh, whenever we had for six years during our DF events, my mom made all of those dresses that were red. Uh, but she lives in Florida. So I would send her a picture, and then she'd take the picture and make the dress, and then ship it up. And were you happy with it? Always. I mean, your mom's listening, so I probably, you probably don't have to answer that. <laughs> oh, I would tell her about that. Um, but, eh, well, not my style. But no, <coughs> I would say 98% of the time, perfect. And I was like, you've noticed I've lost weight. How do you even know this? She's like, FaceTime. I'm like, this is true. Smart mom. So, you know, um, but I, I always was fascinating to me how the idea of sewing, like, at that level of like, concentration and detail that my mom knew how to do, and I bet that's coming very handy. It's totally true, and you know, I've thought a lot about the idea of flow and what does it mean to get into your sweet spot so that the time just sort of speeds by. And if you ask me a question about where, when are you in your element, getting lost in a creative project, I would stay up till three or four in the morning to finish the outfit that I wanted to wear to school the next day. I'd have no idea that that time had passed. I was just in in that zone. Yeah, it's me. Meanwhile, can I sew a button? Anything else? No. Well, you had someone else doing it for you. You can also create a circuit board yourself. You're doing fine. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, my mom laughs at me. She's like, at some point you'll learn how to sew a zipper. I'm like, that's what you're for. And zippers are hard. Because they're really hard. Yeah. So, 
And what is it you do now? Well, what I do now is uh, run a global organization that I founded um, at a major life inflection point. It's called Parlay House. Um, we're currently in New York and San Francisco and Oakland and London and L.A. and this September coming to D.C. and Boston. And what we do is uh, meet once a month to bring the most diverse group of women together to talk about the things that we don't have other safe spaces to talk about. So it's about connecting with people outside of your bubble. It's about having conversations that are vulnerable and intimate and finding the truths that you don't find when you introduce yourself by what you do for a living. And so I'm really trying to reframe those conversations away from what we do towards who we are, what we've experienced, what we aspire to, what we care about. Awesome. So how does Anne go from sewing her school stuff to creating this global force. What's that journey like? Uh, well, the journey was meandering. You know, I, I went to Wellesley and maybe should have studied art history, but I studied political science and economics and was looking for a job in 1984, which was not such a great economic time for this country. And I had written my honors thesis on political risk and third world investment, what you do with that I didn't really know, but I got a lead to the insurance industry. And I found myself as a, you know, brainy, feminist female working in, at that time, an incredibly masculine, sexist industry, doing something that was so far from my creative essence, so far from sewing, that I hated it. It was so bad of a fit for me. And so I spent the first probably 10 years of my career iterating. You know, I would I, I did that for a while. After I had taken the job, about six months in, um, I was working in the political risk insurance department, which provided insurance against for companies that were going to invest in whether it was developing nations or conflict um, heavy areas. And my boss quit, and I found myself at 22 years old, maybe 23 years old, running this little international department. Well, I didn't like insurance. I was terrible at it, actually. But what I did like were some of the components, um, you know, some of the non-traditional creative thinking. Um, you know, we were global, so I got to travel all the time. Um, I was good at doing the communications pieces, the newsletters, telling the rest of the company what this quirky little department was doing. And so I started to pay attention to the things that worked for me as opposed to the things that didn't and iterated those first into the world of corporate communications, which I did much better at, but it felt a little too limited. And then I iterated to the world of advertising um, through corporate communications. And I sort of said to my clients, I love working with you, but I would love to be doing something broader. And they introduced me to their ad agency. And when I was eight months pregnant, someone gave me a shot and hired me an eight-month pregnant mom uh, to start learning the world of advertising, and that's where it all clicked. And so the majority of my career before I founded Parlay House was running and building advertising agencies for some of the big holding companies here in New York. Awesome. And so how do you spend the, 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 the bulk of your career, because you're now an advertising executive, and how does that all get you to Parlay House? Well, it actually was the opposite of that that got me to Parlay House. So I, you know, had this terrific career. I ended up um, getting out of a pretty um, terrible, dangerous 
abusive marriage and becoming a single mom, raising two amazing daughters. And I was leading this crazy life. I would get up at 4.45 in the morning, living in New Jersey. I would drive into Manhattan. I would walk across town in my four-inch heels. I would get to the gym, work out, get to the office at 7.30, run a company, and then draw the line and say, I want to be a mom because this is when all the important stuff happens is at the dinner table and those conversations about the day. And so I would leave at 6 and go home and be a mom and get back online. And I did this for many, many, many years. And, um, you know, in parallel to that story, when you're living that hard of a life, and based on the cards you get dealt, I found myself a multiple-time cancer victim, I guess you'd call it victim, Um, but certainly experienced that and had some major surgeries, Um, but got through it, just sort of compartmentalized those things as you have to, because I didn't have a choice. And I found myself, um, as my girls got older, my oldest one went off to college. My uh, second daughter was nearing college time. I found that I had a little more free time than I'd had when I was full-on mom because they were more and more independent. And so I helped start a school in Uganda with um, some really smart people who were trying to change and break the cycle of poverty in a small town outside of Uganda. And I went to Uganda to check in on the school. My oldest daughter was teaching there for the summer. And I got a call from my oncologist who had been following up with me after my last surgery for a number of years. And he said, eh, um, doesn't look so good. Your last biopsy came back and you need to have some major surgery. So can you please come home and we're going to have some major surgery. So this was 2010, depth of the recession. I was running a turnaround, not a startup. I'm definitely a startup person. But I thought, okay, um, you know, here we go again. I'm tough. I can deal with anything. And I walked into my boss, for whom I had started four different advertising agencies, and I said, you know, I've been through this before. I'll go through this again. I'm going to take off a couple weeks, and I'll be back, and I'll run the company, and this is just what we'll do. And it didn't happen in a split second, but essentially the conversation unfolded, and he said, "Eh, don't hate me for this. I'm going to have someone else run the company. And in the blink of an eye, I lost my health, I lost my job, and my last kid, who was part of my self-definition, was leaving to go to college, and I was facing an empty nest. So I went from top of the success chain, you know, multiple times uh, CEO, to nothing. Well, almost nothing. I had been dating a really cute guy who lived in California. We were dating long distance, and luckily, he was still there for me when everything else fell apart. But I really went from my identity being CEO and mom to what the hell am I doing and what's important to me. And it was really interesting. I went and I had the surgery and my boyfriend, who's now my husband, was super supportive and you know I got through it. But it gave me a chance to think about, okay, what do I do now? Do I just, you know, pull my shoes back on and go and get another job and run another company. And I looked at what happened when I was out having the surgery. And those hundreds and even thousands of people that I had worked with, either they had worked for me, I had worked with, they were in the industry, they were not there for me when I was not in power anymore. I was really alone. I had a few really great girlfriends who were super supportive, my family supportive. But I was quite alone in that experience. And I thought, huh, These relationships that I'm in when I'm slugging it out are transactional. If I can't do things for people, they're not there for me. 
And that didn't feel good. And so I really, you know, I was about to turn 50 years old and I had to stop and think about, okay, how do I want to frame the next chapter of my life? What's my reset? And my reset started to become clear when I thought about the positive experiences, the times, you know, I have two sisters who I'm very close with. I had two daughters. I went to Wellesley where I had really intimate connections with people where we were super supportive of each other. And I had, was lucky enough to be a fellow at the Aspen Institute where I spent a couple of years in a, in a, in a cohort with 20, 20 people, 20 of us, who were all very different. You know, we were different ends of the political spectrum, public sector, private sector, American, not American, male, female. But by sharing experiences together, reading the classics, listening to a piece of music, we could have intimate conversations among strangers. And I thought, that's where the real connections for me had happened, was in the, were in those situations. And, you know, I've been in a lot of, of work environments where women were pitted against women rather than really understanding who, who we are at a level that doesn't have anything to do with job, but has to do with both the common and uncommon things we face that are much easier to handle when we are connected to other humans. So I just started experimenting, and I invited um, a few friends of friends. I moved out to San Francisco, which is a big part I admitted from this story, because when David said, you know, what are you going to do now? And he was living in California and I was living in New York. I had nothing holding me to New York anymore. And so I just sort of hopped on a plane and (laughs) gave up everything that was to try to figure out what could be next. And I started experimenting in our new home in San Francisco, literally having 10 strangers, women who were friends of friends into my home. And I had another person who I knew not so well, but I knew her enough, who uh, is a poet and talked about how poetry can be accessible to people because usually it's kind of intellectual and hard to hard to grasp for everybody and people think there's a right and wrong answer to interpretation. So we just sort of talked about it. It wasn't, it wasn't um, incredibly intimate as our first conversation, but it showed that when we had someone framing a conversation, people who didn't know each other could start to have conversations. And those led to friendships. Not, that, not about poetry, just about what's underneath the conversation. And it turned out that when I would invite strangers to my home and they would connect with other new people, sparks would fly that echoed super broadly. It could it could have resulted in someone getting a job, but it also could result in her not feeling, al- feeling alone or for her thinking about something she'd never thought of or talking about an experience. This is before Me Too. So we were having Me Too-like conversations before hashtag Me Too was a thing because we're all starving for intimacy and connection and friendships. And so, you know, we're now 5,000 plus members in the U.S. and London with lots of opportunities to continue to expand because my unmet need, you know, me feeling isolated and not knowing how to talk about myself if it wasn't job or family was other people's truths too. So I'm now on a mission to create environments where people who might not have met and connected have the opportunity to meet and connect. Well, yeah, as a proud card-carrying member of Parley House and ending up making an awesome friend who is now my neighbor, (laughs) uh, as a result, I can attest to the power of what um, the comfort is. I think there's something really unique, and it's it's, it's true that women are actually starving for this because it's so hard to be 
Laura who runs business, Laura who does this, and all. But there's like there's like eight different versions of me. Right. So like when you get the, and the in the hierarchy, are, you're generally the caregiver. I'm guessing we all are. We all are. You know, we're taking care of everybody around us, and there's not much time for us to be taken care of. So one of the things we do at Parlay House is we serve lovely wine or champagne and nice food, and at least for one day each month, if you choose to be part of it, you're not at the bottom of the totem pole of care. We're caring for each other. Well, that's the thing I think is so important that you know having these spaces where women can just be themselves. Mm-hmm. Because I find as I move up the chain in terms of the echelon I end up in, that like we have less and less and less and less time. Yeah. And we're putting ourselves behind, 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 behind. And that's just not where you need to be. And so having somewhere like Parlay House is, is so valuable because you're able to meet women from different walks of life who are in different stages and just want to be open. That's the key for a lot of this stuff. And I think... It's especially in this current climate where everyone's like, what do we do? Like between the politics of now and Me Too happening, that it's very difficult for women to be like, okay, I just need to be. <laughs> right. It's, so it's, it's, it's definitely a different side of the house. So now that you've, you've put a 5,000 critical strong, like what is sort of like the goal for the next round of probably House? Well, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that by talking about it, and I'm working on a book, which will be coming out in the new year, um, that provides both insights about my journey, but also helpful hints about how to get something started that's meaningful for you. You know, I'm hoping there become parlay houses for women all over the world. And, you know, at some point, to include men in these safe conversations. I don't think we as a society are at a place now where we're on equal footing to have these safe conversations, but I'm hoping we're going to get there. You know, it's funny, I guess teach a class at the whole International School of Business on gender issues. And three years ago when I started teaching the class, there were no men in the class, and it was all just a women-to-women conversation. And the next year there were a couple of gay men in the class, and they actively participated in the conversation. And this last year, uh, a couple months ago when I finished, the class was 50-50. Wow. And that was super meaningful to me because it said, and these are, these are not American men for the most part. They were from India and from China and from, you know, all over the world. And it was fascinating. After I told my pretty vulnerable life story, the very first question was for a man, from a man from rural India who said this is great, but I don't have anyone to talk to intimately, and I need to learn to have these conversations. So when are you launching Parlay House for Men? And it was very, you know, we think of sort of entitled, privileged men and their inner circles, but when you think about the world, there are a whole lot of people who feel other and don't have safe places to talk. And, you know, if I'm doing my part in making conversations that didn't used to be public open conversations, more comfortable to have with a broader range of people. I feel I've left an important... Happy holidays, Reset listeners. I've got something special for you just in time for the holidays. It's from our friends over at Masterclass. What's Masterclass? Well, Masterclass lets you learn from the best with online courses taught by masters of their craft. So you get everything from Shonda Rhimes teaching about TV writing, Anna Wintour teaching about creative leadership... Don von Fosterberg talking about building a fashion brand, which is totally uh, interesting considering our conversation today with Kim Jenkins. And my personal favorite, we've got Serena Williams who teaches tennis. So I just took this course and it's pretty amazing.
amazing. Uh, there are over 60 instructors with tons of categories. There's literally something for everyone. If you've ever wanted to learn something by the best people in the world, this is the app for you. So now, for a limited time only, uh, when you buy one annual Masterclass All Access Pass membership for yourself, you get another one to get for free. So think about the people who are so hard to buy for. This is a gift for them. So just go to masterclass.com slash reset to get started with the limited time offer. Buy one All Access Pass and get one as a free gift. So go ahead, check it out, masterclass.com slash reset. Happy holidays. The climate now for vulnerability has actually become the thing. And I think that three, four years ago, if you talk about vulnerability, it was a woman's thing. And I think there's definitely been a shift where more and more men are now saying, oh, I can talk about, you know, mental illness, family issues, you know, their own struggles. The idea of what self-care means to them has all sort of now begun to kind of crack open. And that's when this starts to get better because we all, we're all human. I think we, we have we've gone through a phase where everyone's been become an Autobot. Yeah. And you just work, 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 work. You know, the hustle 24 hours a day. And you like, if you're not up doing that, then you're missing out. And that sort of pervades our society for the last you know, 10, 15 years. And it did huge damage. Uh, and, and now that we're kind of coming out of it, it's okay. What are some ways we can break these cycles? How can we start to be vulnerable and you know, provide spaces for everyone to sort of learn from each other? And because once you, you know, this guy named Corey Blake, who has a program called Vulnerability is Sexy. And, you know, the reason he says the reason I, Yeah, and the reason that you talk about it is because, like, if you say that, and all of a sudden guys don't think it's weird. Right. <laughs> <laughs> frame, it in, frame it in terms of something that's meaningful. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, wow, really? That's what we have to like, Okay, fire power to frame it, frame it. But have the Well, it's amazing here. how much tension you diffuse when you start off the conversation being vulnerable. It opens, it, you know, it sounds risky, but it actually opens the door and it is like a, a, a release that you can feel and hear in a room when someone is willing to say that first okay. thing. Then everyone else has permission to admit and talk about and cry and be pissed because there's a whole lot of these discussions that have to do with not just kind of namby-pamby positivity but about things that piss us off. Yeah. And when you look at the, the challenges we have as a society, we need to have places to talk about those too because that's when the action starts to happen. Yeah, because if you don't talk about it, then it just sort of festers. Absolutely. And also, if you don't talk about it, then there's no way you can make a solution. And, you know, I was saying that some friends of mine the other day about the elections. I was like, you can bitch and moan about how, how bad politics are, but what are you doing to help? It's like, are you putting your money behind candidates? Are you supporting nonprofits to do voter registration? Like, use your powers for good and not think that, like, you know, just being angry and festering about that is going to solve any problem. Yeah, I write a monthly newsletter called One Small Thing. And, you know, I think in days like those that we face now, where the polarization of people in this country is so extreme, where the amount of anger on all sides is just untenable, it, be- it becomes overwhelming. Like, how could I, as an individual, make a dent on these huge gaps and disparities in society? And one small thing is really about um, the cascade effect that can happen through 
one person connecting with another person and pulling them forward in some way that's easy for the giver, meaningful to the receiver, and then starts a cascade uh, of good. And so, you know, anybody who's interested can go on my and Deborah Mills website and subscribe to One Small Thing because I think we bring about sort of solutions-oriented, tiny conversations that don't make you give up your corporate job and go run a nonprofit or ask something that's just not tenable. tenable. <laughs> uh, it's small things that we can do that are truly meaningful for other people. We'll definitely put that in the show notes so um, our listeners can subscribe because it definitely is like it, it doesn't, you don't have to change the world tomorrow. Like, you can do one small thing. Can you make an introduction for somebody? Like, I just did someone's reference. And I was like, sure. Right. Like, can, you teach them, can you teach them how to sew? Do you have baby clothes that your child's grown out of that someone else can benefit from? You know, it might be like a pay it forward in line at Starbucks, but I think it's more likely to be the transfer of skills or experience or even best listening, empathizing, identifying, confirming, you know, those things are so meaningful because all of a sudden the person feels seen and cared for. Well, that's the thing. I, I think that, you know, I try and spend, you know, I usually do this on Fridays where it's like, you know, I spend my five for five Fridays where I pick five people who I haven't talked to in a bit and I have trying to have coffee or a drink with them. And it's like half an hour little meetings and I pick some, I pick a nice hotel bar because Starbucks meetings are terrible and I want to meet in my office. And we just connect. And it's like, hey, like, you know, you pop into my thoughts. I thought it'd be great to have a conversation. And you're like, and what ends up happening is that, like, you just get to hear from the person. And, you know, invariably, some fun thing comes up. You did something fun, or like, there's been this thing going on, or a new opportunity might be coming your way. But I like to think of it as a great way to just keep people top of mind because the more that you can just, oh, hey, great to hear from you. Because it, it does, oftentimes, people just want to talk to someone. Yeah, and not about work, and not and it's like, hey, how are you doing? Like, because we don't do that anymore as adults. Like, you know, I was saying to a friend of mine, like, how do I, how do we do our events? And I'm like, well, think about a sandbox. When we were little kids, we all got thrown in the sandbox as little kids, and it was like, oh, go play with Johnny, and like, all right, cool. And I didn't know anything about Johnny, but Johnny is sitting next to me in the sandbox. So hi, you've got a blue shirt, I've got a red shirt. He's got a bucket. Yeah, I got a pail. We'll play. And that's how you be. That's how you made your first friends. It was like there wasn't anything else there, and what ends up happening is just a little bit of magic. And so the same thing, like when you create these experiences where people can feel vulnerable and feel good, like little bits of magic come out of it. Um, and so I think it's it's fantastic what you've been able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. And so. Are, do you think that there'll ever be like multiple ends in different places? Or? Oh, there already are. Yeah. There oh, already right. are. In most of the cities, you know, I, I run the New York and San Francisco locations myself, but in all the other cities, it's other women who also feel this is important, who also want to be sort of a catalyst for the strengthening of people and connections and ideas and... You know, some of it's action-oriented and some of it's just feeling and some of it's being seen or learning. And, you know, I try to vary content, as do the other leaders of Parlay House, so that some one one month it might be lighthearted and, and fun and one it might be serious and one it might be educational. And, you know, when we have these varied experiences, it attracts a different subgroup every time. And so it's it's terrific because your your world just expands and expands based on different facets of yourself that you're putting forward when you come to these events. So cool. So what would you probably say to a 25-year-old man? 
I would say stop trying to be so damn perfect <laughs> um, because it's impossible and you'll just measure yourself up as a failure all the time. And talk about your failures as much as your successes because that is a vulnerability that makes everyone else around you feel comfortable rather than intimidated. And I would also say that every decision you make is just one step in a very long life. So instead of being intimidated that you might be making the wrong decision, take a leap, try something, do your best at it. If it's right, you're going to have another leap in that direction. If it's wrong, there's going to be a super interesting sideways leap or around the corner leap. And you, know, you shouldn't be afraid of trying things because I think life is a perpetual education and experimentation. And if you're worried that this might not be the right decision for my entire career, you're going to be paralyzed. And if you think, this is something I'm interested in trying now, you're likely to be playing to something closer to your heart to start with, and the success likelihood is higher. Wow. So 25-year-old Anne, we've gotten a lot of good advice. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so we haven't talked about this a little bit before. Like, so what do you think the New York versus San Francisco side of the universe is about? Like, you know, we've got female founders here and then we've got female founders out there. What's, why is there such a big difference between the two of us? You know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I have been living in San Francisco for a while, but I'm not sure that I can um, uh, generalize about the difference. I mean, I think there's an intensity about New York that is based on sort of the vibrance and close-packed nature of the city, the diversity of the people. San Francisco is is not as diverse or not diverse in the same way, not quite packed together, although housing is a huge problem. <laughs> um, but, you know, San Francisco, everybody is an entrepreneur, so it's less interesting because most people are. I think entrepreneurs in New York are slotted in side by side with people in finance and people in public services. And, you know, there's just a range and a density in New York that um, brings out something different in people. And I, I like both halves of it. I mean, truthfully, I love my San Francisco depth because New Yorkers are often running so fast that we don't have time to be deep. And I love my New York intensity and San Franciscans just don't have that same, for the most part, that same sort of relentless, exciting, electric drive. And I, you know, I, I'm half and half. I'm, I, I need to have a foot in each place. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I think the New York thing, I think I was saying this somewhere earlier, is that like on every corner in New York city, there are a million stories, and and because and you never it's so unpredictable, which is why it makes it fascinating and makes it interesting. And there's nowhere else in the world that except for New York where you can find that. You can be in a theater surrounded by a thousand people, and every single person is there for a different reason and has a crazy story as to why they're sitting in that particular day at that particular time for that particular show at that moment. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just different, and I think you know that's what's you know the stories that people tell and the experiences they have just are much more varied here because we're such a crazy melting pot yeah. of a city, and so I love it, but also drives me crazy. <laughs> well, what's interesting for me is because I'm familiar with both 
cities. But now that we've expanded to, you know, Oakland is different than San Francisco and LA is way different. And, you know, when we, what we talk about, when we talk about it, who's hosting it, what the dynamics are like is different there than it is in London. And, you know, we'll see what, what is, what is it like to have Parlay House in Washington, D.C. and in Boston, which, you know, we're heading to D.C. in the middle of, um, you know, sort of a, a turning back of time for a lot of our nation, especially related to women's empowerment and um, diversity and all the things that Parlay House is about. And so I don't know what the dynamics and cadence of those cities is going to be like. And I'm sort of learning, relearning our country as we roll out into different cities. And how are you stuck in the cities? It's really the entire amazing thing about Parlay House is that I'm not selecting anything. You know, the membership comes by one woman choosing to bring another woman forward. Once you're a member, you're empowered to make other people members because membership just means, are you in? You want to be part of our circle. You can decide every month whether you care about the topic, whether you have time, whether you want to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really member-driven. Same thing about the women who choose to run the different city uh, uh, city groups is they say, yeah, I'm missing that in my life, and I have the, the capacity, the apartment or the house or the the inkling that I want to be a core of making this happen in my city. And they come to me and say, you know, I I had a fascinating conversation in San Francisco recently. We had a gynecologist talk about the evolution of women's hormones through the course of your life and why you're feeling and experiencing different things, what you can do, what you can't do, what you should expect. The kinds of sort of intimate conversations we might have with a very close-knit friend or family member, but that you don't go talking about on a broad level. And there was a young woman there, and she was sort of listening keenly during this conversation. And afterwards, she came up to me and she said, you know, I'm from Jordan, and I'm 32 years old. My mother probably wouldn't discuss these things with me ever, but certainly not as a single woman. You know, if I was married, maybe I could ask her a question. And she said, and what's a pap smear at 32? Oh and, and she said, I think we probably need to have Parlay House in Jordan because no one's having these conversations. And so it's, it's, it's situations like that where I've had people who might be visiting say, I really need this in my city. How do I help it happen? And we have an, a whole you know, immersion kit to help people who want to start Parlay House get started and support their building of a, a list of interested people and figuring out programming and, you know, probably in a similar way to the way that you think about building events for your big corporate clients, we do it for women. That's incredible. I mean, one, oh my God, 32 <laughs> and never talked about it, geez. 32 <laughs> and, and never talked about anything related to your body and your health and being a woman. Well, it's it's, it's also, not unusual. I'm sure she's in the majority. Oh, I'm sure she's in the majority. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I was having a conversation with a girlfriend line the other day, and you know, so she's in her late forties and about to hit menopause, and so obviously I'm twelve years younger, so it's not in, it's not in, it's not in my wheelhouse. And she's like, I really wish there was somewhere where I could go and like talk to other women about this because you know the friends I have who are like my friends from high school who are in those who are in that same age bracket. You know they're far away, and like, and you, and, and it's interesting because you realize that you need groups of women who can cut across so many different spectrums because, like, that's why you want to talk about this stuff. Exactly. 
and that was that was what the, this topic was. You know, it was it was sort of about from reproduction through menopause because none of us are. Ta- everyone thinks they're the only one that's having a hard time getting pregnant, or who's worried that they're going to be too old before or they find the right person, blah, blah, blah. or yeah. who's having perimenopause and no one even tells them what the hell that is, or who's spouse is so pissed off because they are sweating at night and not into things that you know, nobody's talking about any of this and so you know I like to provide forums where all of a sudden we're not alone because I, I think especially you know as female entrepreneurs as female as women in business like again we have to put on this mask of being superwomen yeah. and we don't get a chance to actually sort of let the guards down and ask those questions of do you think it's okay? And because also, like, we come, we we're sort of built to be like, oh, is that what we're gonna talk about? Like, we both have this perfect face, and nothing can go wrong, and we can't show weakness because then right. you know men will step all over us, and right. it's like, yeah, no, right. And if 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 we haven't totally broken down those barriers and gender norms in the work world by at least on a private level starting to realize that we're all experiencing the same thing and finding tactics in our own worlds for making it a little bit easier on the next few people it's not going to change so we've got to start somewhere this is where this is where I choose to start would you ever go back in that advertising mm, I, you know I think about it I actually miss the camaraderie of creative teams and what it feels like to have a routine and to have a group of people and to be doing business based on creativity and creative ideas. I really miss that piece of it. But I don't miss the brutality. I don't miss the commoditization of creative products, which happens when instead of having marketing clients, you have procurement driving decisions. You know, I don't miss the pressure to deliver high margins and the coldness that lawyers want you to uh, to have when you deal with having to downsize or deal there are a lot of things I don't miss but I miss the culture I miss being with highly creative people so probably not because I love what I'm doing now but I, I, I do love the world of, of creativity a lot Oh, and you're, still, and you're also creating something pretty awesome on a monthly basis around yeah. the world. So, hey, yeah. So, question for you: um, What does Anne do to chill out and relax? So, it's this has sort of become like a popular thing with the show, where we sort of find out where do you go for a drink? Where, what's the thing that you sort of do to get away from everybody else and have that important me time? Because no matter what we're doing, it's really important for people to understand that, like, you've got to sort of take a break for you, otherwise you will fall into a giant hole. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I, I will answer that in a few ways. There, there are things that I do on a daily basis that keep me from falling into the hole. So, you know, I'm 57 years old. I don't look like it. And part of that is because I work out every day, and I'm really, that is m- me time. You know, when I go to the gym, I'm generally not sending emails and not on the phone. And I am, you know, that listening to music and letting my mind wander. It's when the creativity happens. It's when some replenishment happens. So that's definitely a thing. If I can be in a place where instead of being at the gym, I'm on a paddleboard or, you know, I'm something in nature, I would I would choose that. I don't get to do that every day. But when I do, that feels great. And the other thing I do is get back to being creative where I'm in that zone. And it could be making a piece of jewelry it could be doing a creative project but you know I really can get 
so much, I don't even know what it is. It's, it's, it's not adrenaline, but it's being, it's that feeling of fulfillment from creating something, even if it doesn't turn out the way I want, it's the process, not the product. I always give away anything that I make because I don't really care about having it after, but I love, we were, we were just on a family vacation and I, my mother and my grandmother, I come from a sort of chain of creative women. And I remember my mom teaching us to do macrame. And when I was walking around, I was in Greece, I was walking around and I was noticing macrame is kind of making a comeback. I I wonder if I can still remember how to do that. So I bought some twine and some rope like for fishing boats and I got sticks and I went out and I created these macrame hangings that I didn't I left them behind in Greece, but the process of do I remember this triggers some positive um, memories of my childhood and of my family and what can I create out of non-expensive materials in a way that engages me and I literally could sit and do that for three hours and have no idea that it's time for dinner or whatever else because I'm just in my zone so that's those are the things that I do some are physical and some are creative awesome well, Anne, it's been such a delight to have you on the show. It's been so fun. Thank um, you for having me here. Absolutely. I so, love what you're doing. I love you. the idea of open conversations and resetting and figuring out what you'd, what you'd do over again and, and what you're happy that you did that way. Awesome. Thank you so much. So we'll put all the information about um, Parlay House in our show notes. And so if you're interested in attending, and let me tell you, it fuels your soul in a way you didn't know you needed it to. So I highly recommend you give it a try. And that's our show. Amazing.